Aloha and welcome to Our Homes, Ending the Housing Crisis. My name is Stanley Chang, and I'm a state senator in Honolulu, Hawaii. Together with Faith Action for Community Equity, a grassroots interfaith nonprofit dedicated to addressing Hawaii's social justice challenges, we're here to understand housing more deeply and seek new, innovative solutions from all over the world to the severe housing crisis here. But many of the lessons may also apply to your community, wherever you may be. And now, on with the show. Good morning and welcome to Our Homes Ending the Housing Shortage. We're fortunate today to be joined by Professor David Schleicher of Yale Law School, one of the nation's top authorities on local land use law and the originator of several innovative methods for facilitating housing growth. Um, he's currently a professor at Yale Law School, formerly at George Mason University, and he's a graduate of the best law school of them all, Harvard Law School. Um, we'll invite him first to say a few words about some of his innovative ideas, and then we'll jump in with some questions, including from the audience. So please type your questions into the Q&A, and we'll get to as many as we can. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Schleicher. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so I just wanted to get started by saying a little bit where I came from, or came to some of these problems from, and then I can talk about the reforms and we can kind of do it and whatever. And so one thing before I uh, start get going, get going um, as a professor, I'm uh, uh, I'm extremely long winded. It's the it's kind of the it's kind of comes with the territory. And so please feel free to interrupt. I don't mind at all. Um, so I came to the questions of land use. Uh, with two intellectual puzzles. And that, that, that this is often how people go at problems. Rather than being a reformist to start off with, I was curious. And the two things I was curious about were, first, economists have now determined extremely conclusively that land use restrictions in America are responsible for a huge amount of economic harm that uh, depending on how you measure it, that the re reducing restrictions in a few metropolitan areas could, so New York, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, Los Angeles, Washington, um, could at the metropolitan level, reducing those to the national average level could increase the size of the economy by, depending on your measurement, like 9%. So the idea here is just so we're clear about what that means. That's like creating a new Canada. If we reduce the level, it would increase the economy by 9%. We'd get a new Canada. Um, as a result of uh, these changes. And that's lunatic. So we don't have any um, example, there aren't many examples in the world of public policies that there's an extremely large consensus would create that much growth. Why would it be the case that our government has decided, our governments have decided not to adopt policies that would wildly expand the economy? Most policies that would wildly expand the economy are things that um, get, generate a lot of political support. The second puzzle I was interested in is why land use is so different than it was from not that long ago. So if you go back in the academic literature to 50 years ago, um, uh, they believed almost the only politics around land use, which was again, very still a very severe and angry politics was about uh, suburban exclusion. It was, there's a belief that rich suburbs dominated by their homeowners would exclude people. They were trying to hoard tax dollars and to uh, racially exclude. Um, and uh, that these suburbs would not let entry, but that other places, particularly big cities, would allow development willy-nilly. And why would big cities, big cities allow a huge amount of development? The belief in the literature was that they were governed by growth machines, that two, uh, several, but really two big interests really wanted cities to grow. And that would be businesses, and businesses like housing growth because uh, it means they can pay their workers less and the workers get the same amount or they get more for their money if the housing is cheap. Um, and unions, particularly uh, government employee unions, really like growth because the more people there are, the more government employees there are. And these are the two biggest spenders to this day in local politics. And yet, um, uh, so in the 70s, we assumed that their influence would mean that we uh, allow a lot of housing if you look at big cities today, this is not the case. So if you go to San Francisco or go to New York City or maybe in Honolulu, big the, the development is hard. And this is contrary to the beliefs of uh, whole generations of political scientists about cities and about land development. So those two puzzles spurred me to try to explain what could drive local exclusion. 
conditional on the, considering that you still have the forces that we're talking about, which is that there's a huge amount, there are $20, trillion dollar bills on the ground, and there are, um, uh, you know, like interests in favor of these things. And the story I came to uh, is that the driving force was law. Um, and in what way do I mean this? Um, uh, the basic idea of a lot of my work is that uh, we break land use decisions down into their component parts. So instead of asking how much housing do we need or how much office space do we need or whatever else, we, uh, we consider changes at the neighborhood level. We do a map amendment to a zoning change. And so we say, should we build new housing here in this space? Should we allow for increased uh, floor area ratio and heights and whatever in this place here? And what effect does that have? Do we make these decisions what I call seriatim, what people call seriatim? We make them one by one. We don't make any global decisions, except in some rare instances. We make a variety of individual localized decisions. And what effect does that have? Well, the people who are against how new housing or new development in the neighborhood are activated by that decision. They care a lot about the development going into their neighborhood. It will compete with the value of their own homes. It will create local externalities, perhaps. Um, and they dislike it a lot. But what about the people in favor of new housing? The businesses and unions that are supposed to dominate local politics. Well, take New York City. JP Morgan Chase is the biggest employer, employs less than 1%, 1% of the of the of the of the workforce. A zoning change in one neighborhood in New York City, say the Upper West Side, um, Soho, whatever you want to pick, um, has uh, is going to be way less than 1% of the overall housing stock. Is it worth it for JP Morgan Chase or AFSME or the construction unions or whoever else to get like too involved in this? The answer is no, because we've broken the decision up into something you know, could go here, go there, that it's not worth it to them. They are, a they become a, what's effectively a diffuse interest, while the concentrated interest of people nearby the project really hate it. On top of this, uh, the one party nature of uh, city politics works against development. And why is this the case? Um, Political parties, when they're competitive, uh, are a way to organize a legislature. They provide some mechanism for saying, getting something passed. The, if the Democrats are in charge, the Democrats vote, all vote for whatever the Democrats are committed to. Without parties or one party dominates everything, it becomes very hard to figure out like what to vote for, or how to vote, or how, how to organize the legislature. And what political scientists have for generations understood is that in that context, the most likely result is what they call distributive politics. But what the rest of us call pork. Every district gets a little bit. And this is a way of ensuring that in the absence of kind of cross-cutting ideological disputes or cross-cutting party organizations to like get things done inside a legislature. And the land use equivalent of pork spending is what people call aldermanic privilege. Each neighborhood representative, the city council person from whatever neighborhood it is, gets to decide and everyone else in the city council defers to that person's determination about a zoning amendment. The effect of these two things that we make these decisions at the local level, which discourages big interests and encourages small interests or homeowner interests to be involved in politics, and the decline of, of political parties inside or political party competition and political party machines inside cities uh, has the effect of um, kind of breaking up the decisions. And so one line I say is that Greenwich Village in New York turns out to be a lot like Greenwich, Connecticut, which is a suburb. So we started off with the problem of why we always understood suburbs excluded, but big cities allowed. But it turns out the way we organize decisions at the, has the effect of giving neighborhoods inside big cities the same veto powers uh, or give, quickly giving the homeowners in those areas the same veto powers that, we get, that homeowners in suburbs have. And it, taken across a metropolitan area, this has the destructive economic forces uh, that I, uh, I, we talk, I talked about at the beginning. And so the question, once you've broken the problem down this way, is like, how could we solve this? And a little more precisely, the question is, what reforms, if someone in favor of housing uh, was in power, what, what could they do to organize the way we make land use decisions to result in systematically more pro-housing decisions over time uh, relative to the current situation. 
and in a way that would be consistent with, you know, everyone's still voting, we still have local democracy, homeowners are still influenced in politics. We could organize a lot of politics differently in a way that would have a, a more pro-housing outcomes. And so that's the kind of gestalt world deal. Do you want me to keep going about reforms or what do you want me to do here? Yeah, it would be great to hear, um, you know, some of the ideas that you proposed in your 2011 article, City Unplanning, which draws on the principles of trade law to break the um, equilibrium and to facilitate the creation of more housing. Great, thanks. Um, so the, again, once I've organized the problem in the way I have, the, um, the analogies to things at the national level or kind of that have happened in other legislatures start, started to emerge to me, uh, occur to me. Um, and trade law and another example I use, which is the base closing commissions, um, have the uh, uh, they, they were situations in which we had a long period in trade policy. This is roughly up until at the kind of ending with the Smoot-Hawley tariff, in which we localized our trade, but we made a variety of seriatim decisions about the tariff on cotton, the tariff on sugar, the tariff on pineapples, whatever it is. Um, uh, and this had the effect of increasing the interest when we made that decision about the, from the pineapple producers, the sugar producers, the uh, cotton producers, whoever it was, in decreasing the influence of broader interests. Similarly, when we were trying to figure out how many bases to close, we had too many military bases. Every, if we tried to close one base at a time, the people near that base would, uh, would, uh, would lose it. Um, but we had no way of getting the broader interest in spending less on the military and having a more efficient system um, to express itself when we were making the decisions one at a time. And so I developed a couple of proposals that were designed to kind of achieve this end. And so the two proposals that I can talk about is one is what I call a zoning budget. And the idea here is that the, the legislature, and this could be a city legislature or a state legislature, should set some target for housing growth. And they can have a big fight about how much housing Honolulu, Hawaii, or whatever needs. Um, and the, in that debate, the big interests in, who are properly part of politics, you know, housing consumers, businesses, labor unions will play a role saying we want more, homeowners will say we want less and we'll come to some equilibrium um, or some result. Um, but the idea of the zoning budget is to force the decision to happen at the level of like how much housing do we need? The way the zoning budget would work is that it would, it's modeled pretty clearly on the Reciprocal Trade Act of 1933, if you want to talk about that, or ultimately the base closing commissions, is that it would have an effect on any individual local decision, which is that until you hit your target, say Honolulu needs 100,000 new housing units or 50,000 new housing units, until a variety of individualized zoning decisions were made that hit that target, um, uh, no down zonings could be approved. And then after that point, you would pair up zonings and down zonings. And the attraction of this is, a, is a, you, or you could do it in a couple of, you could organize in a couple of different ways. You could say two to one until you, but whatever. Um, the idea is that you would have the effect of um, one, I, until you hit a target, there'd be some penalty. So no down zonings, you could make the penalty. Um, if you don't hit your target in four years, every property in the whole jurisdiction is up zoned, however you want to do it. Um, uh, but And then after that point, if you want to oppose something, you have to point to some other place and say, oh, we don't want it in our neighborhood. It should go in your neighborhood, which will activate people in that neighborhood to oppose it. And then you can have a fight about the best location of it. But the, the trick is to make us make a collective decision rather than a variety of individualized decisions. The other idea is says, well, look, if we're going to have a variety of local decisions and we accept that this is going to be something that happens, we should come up with a way for everyone to pay off those neighbors. Um, uh, currently, what we do when we want uh, to effectively uh, uh, overcome local opposition is we make the developer pay some money. And this can happen through development impact fees. It can happen through community benefit agreements. But it can happen through a variety of mechanisms. But the idea is that it's incumbent upon the developer to convince the locals that this new development is worth it. And they can do so in a variety of ways. They can say, we'll build a park. We'll build a school. We'll do whatever it is we're going to do. But making developers pay for stuff in addition to building housing increases the cost of housing. It's a tax on new housing. Um, and uh, another way to say, well, look, local neighbor is going to impose something unless we give them some, uh, uh, um, uh, give them some, uh, some candy. We could say, well, why don't we all do it? 
And the idea I call tax increment local transfers. If we redevelop a neighborhood, it's going to produce more property taxes because developing it will increase the value of the property. And so the idea here is to say, well, that will create a tax increment. So keeping tax rates constant, if the value of something goes up, it will increase in taxes. That's what people call the tax increment. If you're familiar with tax increment financing for redevelopment purposes, it's a similar idea. We could take some of that tax increment and transfer it to local neighborhoods who are bearing local development and uh, pay them off that way. And this would be a, just like development impact fees or community benefit agreements have the effect of giving money to local neighborhoods that are accepting new development. This would too, but the money would not be coming from something we want, new development, but it'd be coming from the broader general fund. Um, uh, and particularly from the tax increment created by new development. And this has a variety of benefits that I can talk about if you're curious, but the idea here is of both proposals, and this is meant to, uh, meant to be just like trade adjustment assistance if you're interested in trade policy. Um, but the idea is to say, well, look, we understand that there are people who don't like new development. They exist. They have real strong interests in doing so, right? Their value of their house, their biggest, in, almost, people have almost all of their money is invested in their houses. They care about the value of the house. They try to ensure the value of their house against new development by, um, by, uh, um, by using land use politics. What tools could we say consistent with people having those preferences? That's their beliefs, I'm not changing their minds, though I wish they would. Um, what, how could we organize, how could we organize the way we make land use decisions to overcome that decision or to otherwise allow new development um, without those people changing their minds? And the answers I give, one is like a constitutional style prop solution or an institutional style solution, zoning budgets. Just like we have budgets for other things, we could organize our appropriations without budgets. We don't, but we could. Um, similarly, and or alternately, we can provide um, money from the fund to overcome or kind of pay off local local opponents. And that's how we organize, have traditionally organized our trade policy. And similarly, we could imagine organizing our land use policy that way. These are really innovative ideas. Um, they've come from, you know, whether it's trade policy, whether it's base uh, closures. Um, these are fields that are not um, traditionally associated with land use regulation. Have any jurisdictions actually adopted these ideas? And if so, what has the effect been? So tilts, I could talk about a way in which we can understand that places have done tilts. Zoning budget's a little easier, which is the zoning budget and a, a city replant, when we do a, a full comprehensive replanning or rezoning of a city, share a lot in common. So when we do a comprehensive rezoning or pass a new city plan, if it, if it is given binding legal effect, has some things in common with the zoning budget. It's not regularized, we don't have to do it. But one example is that so in uh, Minneapolis, um, uh, there's a legal requirement to do a replanning process every number, some, number of years. Uh, some of you may know about the success of Minneapolis 2040, which is the, um, the kind of big rezoning they did, uh, ended single family zoning in the city. It allowed for a whole bunch of redevelopments along transit corridors. Um, uh, and this was done because they had to do a citywide thing. Um, and so we could, that the, it shares something in common or the, of a family with city plans. Um, some jurisdictions make city plans mandatory. Another thing that is of a family with it is the California Regional Housing Needs Act allocation system. California sets housing targets for every jurisdiction in California. Um, the method by which they set them has been disputed and has been changed in a really pro-housing direction in the last recent years. The penalties for not hitting your targets have traditionally been weak. They've been increased in the last few years, but it's sim as a, as a, as a similar flavor. Tilts is a little different. Tilts is a little more unique or as, a, as an idea and has not been adopted as I propose it. However, we do something like it all the time which is that when a city proposes a rezoning in a neighborhood that is unhappy about it, the city will frequently say, we're gonna provide all sorts of stuff for you. We'll build a park, we'll rehab your schools. Um, the thing about tilts that differentiates it from those informal projects, you wouldn't have to rely or trust the politicians to follow through with their promises to build stuff near your neighborhood if you accept a, new, a big new 
apartment tower. And it would, the way I designed it, the money would go directly to homeowners who are the kind of roadblocks here rather than to uh, public goods. But again, it's a, um, a it's a, of a family with those types of things. And so again, any mayor who wants to get something done conditional on, you know, the fact that NIMBYs in the neighborhoods are going to oppose them will do something like tilts, if not as kind of, uh, uh, kind of um, legally clean as the form I describe it as. So you use the term NIMBY, which of course stands for not in my backyard, and which is sometimes used as a descriptor of opponents to housing and other types of development. Um, and you've also stated that, you know, NIMBYism, whatever you want to call this phenomenon, is not going anywhere. Um, in actual community board hearings, opponents cite specific reasons why this given project is ill-suited to this particular location. So they'll say things like, I support affordable housing, just not here. Um, and they will cite issues with parking, with traffic, with noise, with crime, with changing the character of the community. Are they lying? It's a great question. I mean, obviously, I don't know what's in anyone's heart. Um, uh, I don't think they're lying. Um, whether they have some motivated reasoning is an interesting question. Um, but the, the, it is, in fact, the case that new development in your neighborhood has some negative impacts on you. Right. So if you own a home and there's new competition, the same way that if you own a store and someone opens a store that sells the same products as you, it will make you unhappy. Right. You used to have some kind of monopoly rents and now you don't. Um, similarly, it will create competition for things. If there's a set number of parking spaces, well, you know, there'll be more people seeking parking. Um, the, the one of the things I like about the zoning budget proposal is that it forces people to wrestle with the global problem when they're deciding the local problem, right? So if you say, I like affordable housing, but not in my neighborhood, it should be incumbent upon you to say, not just, I like it in theory, someone figure this problem out, but to say, oh, the city's proposed here, I should say over there. And that will force them to play the role of the governing to say, hey, Actually, all of my local problems, you know, it would be better that whatever these things would be don't exist in that neighborhood over there. And that would give the people in that neighborhood the ability to say, actually, you're the worst. It, we should put the affordable housing or I mean, affordable housing, thinking of affordable housing as a, as a harm is, I think, a pretty pernicious uh, social practice. But like, say, let's say a garbage disposal. No one wants to have a garbage disposal in their neighborhood. If the city proposes garbage disposals all over town, and you say, well, my neighborhood is a special little flower. I shouldn't have this. You should say, have to say where it should go. And that's the kind of spirit of the zoning budgets idea, which is to put upon these people, the, 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 uh, the people who say, well, I like it, but not my neighborhood, the responsibility of explaining where it should go. Um, and pressed that way, um, I suspect it would either, whether they're lying would become real. Either they say, I don't believe in affordable housing at all. If I have to say I has to go in that neighborhood and that neighborhood is just as politically powerful as me. Or they'll say, eh, I'll take a little here. Um, and that's the structure of the idea. Um, there are some protections that would have to be put in and I could talk about that also, which is that you'd wanna make sure that it's, that if affordable housing is proposed in a rich neighborhood and they wanna propose an alternative, they can't just say, put it in you know, next to the garbage dump or next to something else, they have to put it in a similar neighborhood one way or another, but that's the structure of the idea. So um, we've maybe skipped over some of the other things that opponents to growth and housing density might say, such as, well, um, this number that was decided in the zoning budget in a hearing that we were not participating in because it's very difficult for us to participate in, you know, hearings in the middle of the day that the city council is conducting um, is a bogus number anyway, because the real problem is that Airbnbs, vacation rentals, wealthy overseas investors, um, wealthy folks from out of state are coming in and sucking out the residential uh, housing stock and instead treating housing as an investment vehicle. And the real answer is not to increase the budget, but to simply kick out all the users of housing stock 
that um, are not local families. How would you respond to that argument? So, I mean, there's something very ironic about it in the sense that um, it's, a, it's a selective invocation of the principles of su supply and demand. So when people say, if we build more, it'll reduce prices, people say, no, 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 that's something wrong with that. On the other hand, when they say people are using the apartments as Airbnbs, that's reducing the supply. And they say, well, that's what's driving our housing costs. It's, there's, there's some, there's some uh, uh, deep inconsistency there. Um, the, um, in most markets, um, uh, uh, neither Airbnb, but particularly not vacant apartments, are a major driver of housing stock. This is a way we offload our, our personal responsibility for the problem on someone else. Um, uh, that said, you know, I have no particular um, uh, particular stake in uh, the question of whether how we should allow Airbnbs or whether we should um, allow uh, more hotel construction or whatever else. Obviously, uh, a tourist economy needs places for um, tourists to stay. Um, and so that's, you know, uh, but um, the, the, it doesn't actually solve the problem in any meaningful, meaningful way. Um, uh, now you could get into some interesting theoretical questions about, um, about like, why do we think short-term rentals are different from year-long rentals? You could get into all sorts of things around the politics of Airbnb if you are interested in doing so, but it is unlikely that doing anything with respect to Airbnb will broadly solve the housing crisis. So, um, and certainly, uh, foreign ownership. Has, I mean, there are very few situations in which that is actually. Most foreign-owned apartments are rented out. There, the number of people who are rich enough to own, like New York City, uh, there are a few buildings where this is the case, um, not the case. Um, uh, uh, but the um, the number of people who can own big New York City apartments and just leave them vacant is actually pretty limited. Uh, there's a lot of foreign ownership, uh, particularly through uh, foreign LLCs. Um, but most of them are rented out and just are part of the broader housing stock. Whether they're rented out as Airbnbs, I, you know, it varies a lot. But um, it is a uh, one of the reasons, maybe, why the supply and demand issue is not quite as clear in housing is that when supply does get too tight relative to demand the effect is that people leave. And we are seeing that in states today like Hawaii, which has lost population for three straight years, like California, which is also uh, losing population. You've observed that Silicon Valley in the 90s was actually losing population even as jobs in that area were skyrocketing. And that phenomenon is certainly repeating itself today. So it seems like the market, natural market forces are saying, well, it's hard to build in places like California and places like Hawaii. It's easy to build in Sunbelt jurisdictions like Houston, like Atlanta. And as a result, those jurisdictions have grown uh, in population by a lot. What's wrong with that? Isn't that just the natural order of things? And shouldn't we be happy with that? I mean, it's a very weird, it's a great question. It's a very weird idea that the natural order of things is the government, literally some governments, governments stopping development in one place. It's true that people will move elsewhere if you are not allowed to build housing, um, but it's not the natural order of things anymore than, I mean, it's a, it's a strange idea. The costs, uh, I, the, the, I think it's important to talk about the way in which limiting access to the richest job markets in America New York, Silicon Valley, San Francisco, or the nicest places, Hawaii, Los Angeles, um, uh, um, uh, create social costs. And they create costs across a couple of dimensions. Um, the first is growth or overall economic output. If people could move from Detroit to Silicon Valley, they would earn a lot more money. And the difference that that the difference in the amount of money they make has a very large effect on the overall side of the economy. That people are more efficient. Uh, they uh, in areas rich job market. We've effectively limited access to our richest job markets and just many of our most beautiful places to only the people who can afford it. Um, and that that is costly and a growth matter, but it also is a big generator of inequality. So uh, uh, Matt Ragnilli has shown in a wonderful paper that almost all of the gains to capital over, uh, over labor in uh, Thomas Piketty's book, or really, really of, of R over G, um, are down to increases in the value of housing. 
that basically that restricting access or property more generally, restricting access to our richest metropolitan areas has had the effect of giving the people who happen to own real estate there a huge amount of wealth and decrease the amount of income our country generates as a whole. And that generates inequality and it generates slow growth. It also has environmental downsides and all sorts of other things that we can talk about, but the um, it's not just okay if people uh, uh, are forced to not move to the place they want to live and are then are, are forced to move to some other place, which is, again, perfectly nice places. I don't have anything against them. Um, but people would, the, the fact that prices are so high in Hawaii, Silicon Valley, San Francisco, New York, LA, Boston, Washington, suggests or shows that there are many people who would like to live there who can't. And we are effectively, through local and state policies, uh, uh, stopping them from moving to the places where they'd most like to live and where they'd earn the most money. Um, and this is really socially destructive. Um, and so it's not just okay, it's bad. Um, it's bad for the country as a whole. Um, uh, uh, and it's, um, it's, bad, uh, it's bad if you care at all about income and wealth inequality. Okay, so um, there have been efforts in a variety of jurisdictions to increase housing density in various ways. Um, Oregon and Minneapolis have ended single family zoning. So those are two clear examples. Um, but as we know, California is probably the US state with the most severe housing shortage and where the conversation on housing is the most advanced, where the governor has, uh, has spent a recent state of the state speech discussing only the issue of housing and no other issues, which is probably unprecedented uh, in the United States. Um, you've praised in your writings efforts like SB 50, SB 827 to upzone single family residential neighborhoods near these transit stations and near these job centers. They have been extremely controversial and they have failed, um, including most recently SB 1120, which failed in a fairly public and spectacular way. Um, has, is California today, are you optimistic for California today? Do you think the progress has been made or have these repeated failures simply revealed how enduring this stalemate is? So I think I'd say both. An answer, but the answer is both of the things, which is that it's a very difficult problem. California, uh, one thing I'll, is that California has been making progress along some dimensions, and it's particularly been making progress along the dimensions that look more like the zoning budgets and less like blunt force tools like SB 50, although I thought that would have been a great idea. The, um, the big thing that's happened in California politics is they've expanded the requirements on each jurisdiction. There are, there are a variety of administrative uh, administrative tools and some legislative changes to increase the um, targeted amounts each jurisdiction needs to build and to create some penalties for failures to build that. And California politics has produced some goods along those ends. They've also produced uh, a lot of changes around accessory, uh, accessory dwelling units. Um, uh, really pretty radical ones uh, that uh, have been, um, that have, have produced actually a good number of housing units. Um, and you've seen accessory dwelling unit reform in a number of states and cities. Um, uh, but it is like, uh, status quos exist for a reason, right? So it politics doesn't land in places randomly. They express the desires and wills of, 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 of interest groups and of people who want certain things. Um, and those who want change face major challenges. And this is a particularly entrenched problem because it is the driving force of it is a totally natural, totally normal thing, which is that homeowners who've invested a lot of money in their houses want to protect about and increase that investment. Um, and they're willing to use the government and to crunch underneath their feet uh, other people in order to do so. Um, but again, it's, it's not, it's a, it's a deeply difficult problem to solve because this is a massive American institution that drives a huge amount of political behavior. Um, and so I've been encouraged by the progress California has made, both rhetorically um, and some policy steps, um, but I also think that it's a long way to go. And the one thing I'll say is that at least California is talking about it. Um, the, and 
Hawaii too, clearly. Um, uh, on the East Coast, these discussions are extremely nascent. Um, and there is a, uh, the development of groups that are interested in fighting for new housing development um, uh, is, a, uh, is, a, is a major source of uh, progress. Of course, it's also created reaction. So the California Yimbies are created and livable California emerges to kind of rally the nimbiest forces from around the state. Um, uh, but um, it is at least a situation in which we are, the political discussion is happening. Um, and so I am mildly optimistic about California, at least relative to other places. Um, that said, California's prop, the re you, might, uh, you might say the reason California has this politics is that it's done much worse over the last 50 years than any other jurisdiction. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, um, I'm both a little optimistic and extremely cognizant of how difficult the problem is and extremely happy to see politicians taking this problem so seriously when, you know, at just as a, the problem was quite severe, although it's obviously gotten a lot worse 20 years ago, um, uh, but uh, there wasn't there, there there weren't politicians doing things like the thing you're doing here. Um, on that political question, do you have a sense of what coalitions need to be developed in order to pass legislation like a zoning budget? And maybe as a as a as a parallel question, you know, we've talked about jurisdictions like Houston, like Atlanta that have this similar, you know, government structures as California and Hawaii, and yet they have been able to achieve a high level of public acceptance of new development. And so what were the political coalitions there that enabled that to exist? So great question. And so for, also the other thing to say is that everywhere I used to have coalitions like this, it is the case that up until, I mean, even though zoning pre-exists this, up until give or take the 1960s or 70s, it really was quite easy to build in most many major metropolitan areas, at least in aggregate. Um, depends where you are, where this changed. Um, uh, so a lot of the idea of the zoning budget is to use law to uh, cobble together or to give incentives or give a forum in which uh, pro-growth forces have a reason to fight. Uh, the same way that the way we organize politics today gives uh, neighborhood groups a reason and a place to fight um, and be stronger or strengthened. Um, the coalition that needs to form is the coalition that this would help create. And it can happen without the zoning budgets also. Um, uh, uh, employers and unions working together to influence politics on behalf of housing consumers is a potentially politically powerful structure. Um, and the question we have to ask is, we, or organizers have to ask themselves, I'm not an organizer, but people involved in politics at that level is how can we overcome the variety of disagreements between these groups to get them to work together on this crucial issue? So next question is like, why aren't Houston and Atlanta the same as San Francisco and uh, New York? So. Houston is a very particular story. So Texas law requires, in order to enact a, uh, a zoning code for the first time, you need to pass a citywide, you need to have a citywide referendum. And this has been proposed in Houston several times. It's been defeated uh, several times. And that forces the decision, the state law forces the decision to happen at the citywide level. Um, just as the zoning budget idea is designed to force politics to happen at the citywide level. Um, the other difference you see across places is in their, in the kind of structure of their politics. And so one question one might ask is like, well, what happened in the seventies and eighties? And there are a couple of stories you can tell, um, uh, Bill Fischel, the economist points to the rise of environmentalism and the, particularly the uh, rise of inflation driving, uh, 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 land use But one other thing we saw was the demise of political machines. Um, and political machines are much despised for many good reasons, but one effect they had was to, de, uh, um, to centralize decision-making in the boss. Um, and the effect of this was to um, uh, ensure that these kind of local neighborhood groups weren't able to veto 
projects. Um, uh, and uh, that getting rid of that system had some major benefits, but also had costs in this dimension. And so Atlanta has met, well, not quite a political machine, has managed to create, maintain, I'm not an expert in Atlanta politics, maintain a more centralized politics of, than, uh, than some other places have. And so that is uh, a difference. Um, so why is it that you think that, so as we know, President Trump has come out in favor of um, saving the suburbs from things like multifamily residential development. And as we know, Trump prides himself on being a populist, on understanding the needs of individual homeowners, forgotten Americans, as opposed to the um, arguments of elites in places like the Upper West Side of Manhattan or in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, what, you know, and, and these suburbs in places like Atlanta and Houston that are, um, you know, in states that are part of the political base of Donald Trump, what uh, political dimension are we seeing fold, unfold now? So, I mean, a couple of things. Uh, the Trump administration would like many elite Republicans, this is when before Trump paid any attention to it himself, was uh, pushing a kind of pro rather than anti-development line, the same way that you see in some among some elite Democrats. So the proposal that he's currently uh, attacking, uh, Cory Booker's proposal to condition community development block grant money or transportation money, depending on the, the variant, on, um, on accepting new housing, was something that the housing and urban development uh, department under George Bush, under Donald Trump, had itself at least hinted its support for. Um, so what is Trump doing here? Well, it's very hard to see that he's doing anything other than um, suggesting that um, new development will create racial integration and that this is something that people don't want. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's a, uh, so the that's a real fact about the world that people, many people don't want to see, particularly he's focused on the creation of affordable housing in the suburbs, um, capital A affordable housing, subsidized housing. Um, uh, and um, it is uh, the also the case that that would re result in greater racial integration. And, you know, he's not so subtly saying that people shouldn't support that. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't know whether populist is the term I use uh, for, I mean, for the, I mean, I don't exactly how we want to define populism is a subject for, I don't know, uh, uh, some seminar somewhere. Um, uh, but it is a, um, uh, I think that that's pretty clearly what's driving the Trump administration's kind of late embrace of, um, of this kind of save the suburbs language. Uh, and so, um, you know, again, like that kind of thing sometimes works in America. Um, it's sad, but it's true. Um, uh, so, We've talked about jurisdictions like Houston and Atlanta that don't have large housing shortages based on a free market approach, which is, of course, the approach that George Mason is famous for. Um, there are other jurisdictions in the world that do have abundant affordable housing, like Vienna and Singapore, that accomplish that abundance through massive governmental intervention into the housing market, through the provision of public housing for a large majority of the population, through rent control, which applies even to the private sector apartments in places like Vienna. Um, what do you think about government-led interventions to greatly increase affordable housing supply? So I think uh, those interventions are very interesting. Um, uh, uh, one of the um, the challenges is that you can't just imagine you have the institutions of some other place when you're setting policy. Um, if you look at the actual American public housing, as opposed to the kind of fantasies of Red Vienna or uh, the kind of sheer competence of Singapore, um, you see a somewhat different record with the production of housing than you see in those places. Those, there are a variety of uh, other policy concerns that one might have uh, with, uh, with, um, with, with those policies and a lot of types of uh, uh, particularly in the context of Singapore, uh, trust in government uh, to um, uh, allocate 
things that uh, Americans have traditionally not been as comfortable with. Um, uh, but if America had institutions that could build public housing as effectively as we might, the private sector can, uh, uh, as we kind of sub with subsidies through uh, Section Eight, um, it perfectly reasonable public policy to do more direct government provision of public housing. Um, I don't know about it going as far as some of these other things, but surely more. Um, the question emerges is if you were trying to solve the housing problem today, um, uh, are we confident in American political institutions and American really more accurately administrative institutions to do this project um, in the form that we, that the people of Singapore, at least the government of Singapore, is confident in its institutions to do. And I think there are a lot of reasons to not be so confident and therefore to uh, provide aid, housing aid to the poor in the form of vouchers and let, let the private sector do the housing building, but give uh, a whole lot of money to poor people to build housing. Um, uh, Joe Biden has proposed um, uh, fully funding uh, uh, fully funding housing vouchers, which would provide a huge amount of money to poor people to buy housing on the private market. Um, it should be included that jurisdictions should very much adopt anti-discrimination rules with respect to uh, vouchers um, so that people can buy housing market, housing voucher, housing in jurisdictions in which they want, which have the schools they want or whatever else that is they'd like. Um, uh, uh, I think we should separate the question though in the, should we provide a lot more aid to the poor? Quickly, so most public housing goes to the poor and most of these jurisdictions, the Singapore as you rightly note, is very different from this. Um, uh, um, and uh, we should ask, um, well, first, should we provide the money? And then secondly, who should do the building conditional on us providing the money? I think the should we provide the money? Well, that's a question about your politics. Um, I think we should provide a lot more money. Um, I think it's basically, a, among other things, it's a, a kind of efficacious form of universal basic income. Um, and it would uh, radically transform uh, the lives of a huge number of people in an attractive way. Um, uh, uh, whether that requires the public building of housing is a separate question. You, you So in, under this model of public financing, but private construction, you're putting a lot of responsibility on the private sector developers and maybe the only entity more reviled than public housing agencies um, are greedy developers in this country you know why do you have faith in greedy developers but not in um, public sector institutions um, so public the question is like if if the goal is to produce housing um, uh, I think there are reasons to believe that uh, we build that private builders are able to build how that the market can provide housing of this sort. Um, uh, if uh, we need uh, the um, it's um, uh, I don't revile them any more than I revile any private sector provider of anything. I don't revile farmers for the food if they make profits on it. You know, same thing. Um, I, I I think the question is not their public popularity, but rather their kind of cost effectiveness of production. Um, if we are going to entrust them with this responsibility. That said, I don't want to be too dramatic about this. Um, I think that some public sector production of housing uh, could be attractive, and particularly in places where the uh, we're going to face these extreme veto points, uh, um, if perhaps public construction could help overcome them. You know, I'm skeptical that that's the case, that the neighborhoods that oppose new private development would suddenly be happy if you saw the building of public buildings, uh, public housing, I suspect they'd be even angrier. Um, but, you know, um, I'm all for experimentation on this front. Um, and in a, in, a, in a kind of a new federal housing program, I suspect and I hope that there'd be at least some effort along the, in the direction you're talking about, because, you know, we can see uh, we can do uh, some experimentation on that front, whether, uh, I mean, traditionally people have, uh, that the, the people who oppose new private development oppose new public development even more so. Um, uh, but, you know, maybe they wouldn't. So, I mean, I'm happy to see that tested. Um, so. One of the reasons why I think public housing has been a relative failure compared to federal programs like social security and Medicare 
and state level programs like free public universal education is that public housing in this country has always been means tested. It's always been income restricted. And of course, it doesn't matter how much money you make, Medicare and social security still apply. Even Donald Trump gets Medicare and social security. And even Donald Trump is allowed to send his kids for a free taxpayer funded public education in all 50 states. So um, is part of the solution to remove income restrictions on public housing and to allow rich and poor to live side by side, to jointly benefit from the fruits of new housing growth. So two things I'll say is that first of all, some means-tested programs also survive. So the there's a, a, a classic sign, a program for the poor is a poor program, but you know, Medicaid is a very successful government program that is means-tested. We have lots of other means-tested government programs that uh, maintain themselves in politics. So it's not so uh, uh, black and white on that score. Um, this means that, so we do provide subsidized housing to uh, a variety of class of, of incomes already. Um, so when uh, we rely on developers to build capital A affordable housing, so subsidized housing, we frequently target it at different uh, 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 percentages of area median income. And depending on your jurisdiction, we do it across different domains. In fact, we provide a lot of subsidized housing to people who are not the poorest, who are in the middle class, um, in in the, in the, the other side of Manhattan, provide in, uh, affordable ho housing, subsidized housing to people who make up, families who make up to $100,000. So you're talking about, you know, not poor people by any stretch of the imagination. Um, uh, the, um, the, I, so it is uh, conditional on us providing not very much public housing. It becomes very hard to justify providing it across the income span because the need is so dramatic among the very poor. In a hypothesized world in which we produce tons and tons and tons of it, then we could, this would be, an, I think it would be a, would be a, uh, would be an interesting question. And maybe we'd produce more of it, as you suggest, if we remove the income. Term. On the other hand, that's betting the uh, livelihood of a huge number of very, very needy people on this hypothesized politics you suggest. And that's a, I mean, it's a question, um, uh, but at the moment, very, very poor people need a lot of help. And uh, if we're only gonna have a limited amount of money to spend, it becomes challenging. I mean, this is a very ordinary politics, right? So we've had this, this is a, um, a, uh, a debate we have across all sorts of domains. So when in the democratic primary, when there's a debate about free college versus, you know, college subsidies. It's a similar type of structure of debate. And I understand where people come down on this or, people, or, or the position you're taking. Um, uh, I, I think it's a, uh, it would be a bad bet in this context, but um, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not unsympathetic to what you're saying. You just pointed out that there are a lot of stakeholders here in the housing game. We're talking about very poor people who probably need subsidies in order to even achieve the most basic level of shelter. We're talking about middle-class families who currently benefit from the largest federal housing subsidy, which is the, uh, of course, the tax deduction for mortgage interest. Um, if you had the chance to, you know, uh, come in as a cabinet uh, secretary or as you know someone with broad powers under a new administration at this very formative moment in American politics where we all agree that the nation is in a crisis and therefore really substantive action is needed and you're you have the sole mission of ending the housing shortages um, that exist all over the country in places like Hawaii California New York and so on um, and you had to end the housing shortage would uh, what would you propose? Would the tilts? Would the zoning budgets? Would you be confident that they're going to end housing shortages? Or what? What? What package of proposals so would the you thing submit? I'd say is that if you put me in charge of a federal program, the federal government has some role to play in this fight, but it is not the major actor. Um, uh, state and local government, particularly state, state and local governments, are the not particularly local at the moment, but it should, probably should be state governments in many respects um, are the dominant actors. And so the first thing I'd say to you is that uh, you probably shouldn't ask 
the this new your new housings are to make decisions on behalf of uh, the or all 50 states that have uh, some responsibility to make these decisions themselves, um, we can provide incentives for them to do so. Um, but the real problem solvers are going to have to be more local. They're going to have to be you, not some hypothesized czar who will solve the problems here. Um, uh, I mean, you specifically. I don't. I mean, I mean, state level political figures and local political figures um, uh, and voters, and not like hoping that. Washington comes in and solves the problem. Like that is, this is not that kind of problem. That said, I think Washington could do a variety of things to provide better incentives to um, places to, uh, uh, they could tie more accurately, more actively tie transportation, community development, block grant money to, um, transportation money to new housing growth. They could create um, tax penalties for failure to house. You could imagine a lot of different policies along that score, but it will still require um, uh, uh, still require uh, um, local jurisdictions to make the determination. One proposal I like, because you brought up the home mortgage introduction, is to say, well, the home mortgage introduction drives a lot of politics. Well, what if it was only available in jurisdictions that um, allowed for a certain amount of housing growth, or it was capped in jurisdictions that didn't allow a certain amount of housing growth relative to or saw uh, the, the, the way this would affect politics was it would give people a huge incentive to encourage their own jurisdictions to uh, be involved in politics, but we'd still have to fight all these fights in state houses and in city halls around the country. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I, one of the, you know, structures of the proposals here of the things I've done is they're, um, they're, they're not, the, the way I'm looking at the problem is not designed to kind of be a uh, kind of messianically solve all of the problems that, you know, uh, um, our lives are too messy. There are too many interests involved to imagine that the housing crisis will be solved with a um, with a, a, a tap of a wand and a, the incantation of magic words. Instead, the question should be something along the lines of: um, In what ways can we structure our politics such that uh, we can result in more rather than liberal outcome, more liberal rather than less liberal outcomes, or more pro-growth rather than less pro-growth outcomes, um, you know, conditional on everyone still existing and having the preferences they do. Um, uh, my good friend, the journalist Matt Iglesias, says that the, the biggest thing the president could do, um, he, was pro he was proposed this to President Obama, um, uh, was show up at a local community board meeting and uh, support an individual project as a signal to people that uh, this was a good thing to do in politics and that they should, that this is the use of the bully pulpit rather than uh, a policy tool. Um, but there's no solution to this crisis. I mean, this crisis was created by individual jurisdictions pulling up the drawbridge and there's no deus ex machina here. There's just a whole variety of local fights and statewide fights to um, in which we have to, you know, uh, use all of the cleverness and tools we have to attempt to solve the problem. The federal government can help here, but it's um, without some really radical changes in the way we understand the kind of scope of what the federal government does, um, and maybe even some, you know, there'd be some constitutional problems there. Um, uh, the um, uh, the um, there's no solution to like the responsibility falling on us ourselves. So. That's a long way of saying I resist the hypothetical, um, uh, but you know I resist the hypothetical. Well, that's a it's a great deal of responsibility that is on the shoulders of local and state governments. Well, I mean, uh, we got some good ones, so it's exciting. It's a uh, it's um it's a uh, it's I have to say, if I had to put my faith in someone, uh, the current uh, administration or Stanley Chang, I'm going with Stanley Chang for sure. <laughs> Well, even Stanley Chang has had very limited success in the Hawaii State Legislature. Well, it's, so. a, it, it's, a, it's a, it was it was comparative to the the, the, the president, so it's a, it's a it's a bar. I don't know how high it is, but it's a bar. Um, let me just close out one more time on the on the issue of nimbyism. Um, in Hawaii, we've seen recent cases where. Uh, a telescope was proposed for the summit of Mauna Kea, where windmills were proposed for the neighborhood of Kahuku, where new ball fields were proposed for a park called Sherwoods. Um, and all of these met every conceivable legal test and permit, but were so deeply 
and sincerely opposed by their uh, neighbors and by the communities that people engaged in civil disobedience, laying themselves across roadways, chaining themselves to fences and so on. Um, the, the pain that these people feel is real. It is, it is, not, um, it is not a political uh, tactic to buy a property tax abatement, right? It is a real pain. Um, how are we and state local officials um, supposed to, you know, um, react to these types of situations? Do we roll in the tanks or do we feel the pain ourselves? It's, it's, a, it's a great question. It, um, I'm glad I'm not a politician on this at this moment. To, uh, to, but it, the one thing I'll say is that I think the challenge, and this is very much linking it to the ideas I suggested, is to convince people somehow that they have to be part of solving a problem rather than being able to just say no. And so if you can confront them and say, okay, you don't think the ball field should go here. I understand you. I feel your pain. Um, where should they go? Or do you think we kids don't need to play ball anymore? Um, uh, and to the extent we can get people to stand in the position of the governing decision maker, as opposed to the uh, um, the uh, the kind of child saying a temper having a temper tantrum saying just no not here never ah um, uh, that that would result in a more attractive um, uh, and 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 healthier politics around these questions. Um, but look, politics involves lots of passions, um, and that's normal and good in a lot of ways. Um, further, people when they're opposing a new ball field in their neighborhood are expressing a extreme nervousness about change. Um, and that's fine, people are scared about change. Uh, the one interesting thing about development that differentiates it from other areas is that change happens in lots of ways in your life and you, while people can be very unhappy about it, um, we don't think the government should be in the position of deciding that fashions can't change. People may be tied to a clothing fashion um, and when it goes out of style or when it, something else comes into style that they don't like, they can be angry about it. Um, and you can imagine TV shows, all sorts of things change and people are unhappy about them. And one thing that uh, the, the bulldozers approach has going for it is that it, it's not just making a statement that, um, your complaints are illegitimate, but rather that this kind of thing won't be rewarded. Um, and uh, there is something attractive to that, even if it is um, in many cases extremely painful to do, because it is a, um, it, there is a type of entitlement that people who own property in the area think their property rights don't just go to the, the, the you know, the, the boundaries of their land, but to determine on behalf of the government what happens in their neighborhood. Um, and that's not a healthy politics. And there needs to be some mechanism for saying, no, you don't have that right. Uh, we all bear responsibilities for providing healthy athletic endeavor for our children. We don't want our children not to be able to run. Um, uh, and you, you, me, all of us bear some responsibility for meeting these collective challenges we face. And you can't just say no. Um, and so, uh, you know, I don't know what type of um, uh, type of response that requires. Uh, it, it will require varied responses, but in general, the healthiest thing or the best thing or the first best thing is to get people in the mindset of proposing alternatives um, because that forces them to not just say no to you, but rather to say, to step into your shoes you bearing a response, you, uh, the powers that be or whatever, bearing the responsibility for meeting these public ends, for providing health ball fields for our kids to play, um, to, um, uh, and force them to play the role of saying, okay, if not you, where? If not here, where? Um, and that would be a healthier politics. And you can imagine achieving it through discussion. You can imagine achieving it through legal changes of the sort of, uh, of the sort of Marani. But regardless of how we achieve it, um, it is important that in land use, we see a lot of this uh, protecting mine and not paying attention to the broader whole. And any way we can break that down is healthy. 
Well, that's a, a very important point, I think. I think that's really the core of the issue that we're discussing today. And unfortunately, our time is short, so we'll have to leave it at that. But I wanted to thank you again, Professor Schleicher, for joining us today on Our Homes Ending the Housing Crisis. Thank you so much for having me. This was a real blast. I really enjoyed it. Um, and I'm, I, and it's just such a wonderful thing you're doing. So um, congratulations on this. Thank you. Hope you'll get to fly out to Hawaii at some point in the near future and see our oh, housing issues in person. That would be a uh, it would be it would be it would be wonderful. So um, uh, any if, if there are any organizations out there that want to pay for a fact finding trip, I am all in. Great. Thank you again, Professor. And thank you to all of our participants today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Our Homes, Ending the Housing Crisis. On behalf of Faith Action for Community Equity and me, Stanley Chang, thank you for being part of the solution to this crisis.